Welcome to Chew the Fat. In this series, I sit down with high-performance guests over their favorite meal, and we unpack lessons in life, in business, and what it takes to be at the top. This is all part of my journey to raise a million dollars by producing a cookbook called Eat With Purpose. Follow along on my Instagram, Frank Grief. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you so much firstly, Kate, for joining me today. Um, I wanted to start off with the Kate Reed that sits in front of us today. What is the context that we need to know about you to go you to be the person you are? So is this going to be a little snapshot story on... Give me a snapshot, whatever, whatever feels right. Okay, so obviously we're sitting in my bakery in Fitzroy in Melbourne. Yes. We just make croissants yes. here. But I think important to know the person that Kate Reed is, is to go back um, a couple of decades to childhood. I was deeply passionate about Formula One, growing up with a father who loved motorsport. It was the way that we connected as father and daughter, very special. Dad took me to the Formula One Grand Prix for the first time when I was 15 years old and it was instant love and I knew that I needed to be part of that world. So worked pretty one-eyed. So from about 15 years old, I focused on the maths and science subjects at school. I did fancy myself for a heartbeat as a driver. Yes, love. And I think another thing that my parents instilled in me was if I wanted something, I could earn the money to go out and get it myself. And I think this is a lesson to this day that has made me deeply appreciate everything I've earned in life because you go out and work for it and earn the money, yeah. then it means more to you. It's not something that's easy to come about. That's I studied aerospace engineering yep. after high school with the express purpose of uh, getting into Formula One. Awesome. Um, one year out of uni, I was offered a job with the Williams F1 team as an aerodynamicist, yep. which I think probably at the time I would have described as my dream job. Yep. I also had a real love for the idea of the race strategy role. 2006, yep. I moved over to the UK to start my dream job. And important point, you know, when you're going through high school and maybe you decide that your dream job is an accountant, like who am I to judge? But I don't think <laughs> anyone's dreaming of that at 15, but say you do. Yeah. In year 10, when you get to go and do your one week of work experience, maybe one of your friend's dads has an accounting office and he gets you the week of work there. Yeah. And you probably stand on the photocopier for the whole week, just doing fairly menial jobs but it gives you an idea of what the environment of an accountant's office is like. Yes. You cannot do work experience as a 16-year-old in a Formula One team. Full like, stop? Like full stop. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's they're probably one of the most difficult to access organisations mm. of all time. Yeah, right. It's such, such hotly contested. Like, you know, anyone who has any interest in motor racing or a proclivity for engineering would probably dream about working in Formula One. So it's the top of its industry, it's impossible to get access to. You definitely can't do work experience yeah. there. And so 16-year-old Kate didn't get to stand in an engineering office and do photocopying yeah. and understand maybe what that environment would be like. And you've got, you know, engineering offices at, at general motor companies like Ford, Holden or overseas. But ultimately, it's pretty obvious that the environment in there is not going to be the same as a Formula One yeah. team as well. Like, you spend 10 years developing a new model of a Ford, but the Formula One car is evolving from week to week based on new discoveries, you know, new innovation in testing, like wind tunnels, yeah. and also what circuit you're going to next and how the car's package needs to change to yes. suit that specific circuit. So. It's such a fast-moving environment that nothing really replicates that yeah. unless it's Formula One. <laughs> but every time I do an interview, yeah. I do try to be very present with the interviewer and tell the story for the first time 
in relevance to the person who's interviewing me. And interestingly, going through this process with you, I'm going through a bit of a phase at the moment where I'm trying to look back and understand why things worked and didn't work for me in the past. And a, a, a couple of things in recent times have shown me like, the engineering office in a Formula One team was not good for me. It wasn't good for my mental health. Um, it started to plummet and suffer very badly to the point where I got really sick. And I think in isolation, looking at that, it was easy to blame a, a larger cause. But in recent weeks, probably work that I've done on myself, I've acknowledged that there was actually nothing wrong with me or the engineering office. Yeah. We were just a bad fit for each other. And I think I always knew pretty quickly after starting to work in F1 that the environment in the office, which was incredibly quiet, incredibly solitary, I thought it would be very people focused, yeah. working in teams, brainstorming, being collaborative and very creative. But because I hadn't been able to witness that as a 16 year old, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And the environment I found myself in, someone, said it perfectly to me the other day, my values and my personal attributes just didn't match the values and the professional attributes of the office that I'd put myself in. That is so, so spot on. I love that. That yeah. is so, so, so true. Like now when I think back on my time at Williams, I think on it really positively. Like it was such an honour and a privilege to be able to work there. It was like one of the hardest offices in the world to get a job in. So I'm still incredibly proud of myself from that perspective. And I learned a lot, not only about the sport and about my specific area of engineering being aerodynamics, but I learned about how to work with quiet people, how to work with difficult people and how to work with incredibly smart people. I was going to say high achieving people. That high is, achieving. Yeah, that is, I like it's a, instead of a small fish in a big pond, that is, like, yeah. that is incredible, I can imagine. So there are a lot of positives that I can take from it, but I think the, the biggest one is that my personality and my values weren't matched to that specific environment and office. So fast forward, I got very sick. We won't talk about the details, but the depression turned into an eating disorder, which meant that I had to return to Australia. And essentially, I returned to Australia with a completely clean professional slate. Like, at that point in time, you couldn't work in Formula One if you lived in Australia. And I'd already started to think that maybe I wanted to diversify and try something different. And I think a lot of people often laugh, like, the, the journey from Formula One to croissants yeah. seems so wild and, and unbelievable. Like, how could that yeah. happen? But baking is a form of science. I was going to say, of all the people that have interviewed you, my background as a chef, I understand completely yeah. that croissants is like the amount of variables in, in, a, like in baking is crazy. I don't need to tell you that. Well, like, um, and I'm looking at the loon, the, the loon kitchen here is like the, like everything temperature control. Like I can understand how your, how your engineering mind would really bring into this. Well, like I think just as a comparison, as a chef, you'll understand this more. But like, for example, you embark on making an incredible Thai curry. Yeah. And it starts with the paste and you have to get the balance right. But often people who make really good Thai curries don't operate from a recipe. They operate based on like intuition and yeah. taste and smell. And it's something that as you go, you can tweak and adjust. Like you can add a bit of fish sauce yes. or lime juice or galangal. Yeah. And then as you go, you're just constantly making these little tweaks. 
if you stuff up the croissant <laughs> dough, which is step number one, yeah, you're done. You've, it, no matter how much tweaking you do, you can't pull back that end product. It is so reliant on you getting every single part of the process right at the time that it's meant to be right, yes. which is very aligned to Formula One. Yes, exactly. Like it's like taking that little element off yeah. the front wing taking it out in isolation it might look great by itself but does it work in the context yeah. of the entire like for the croissants every element has to work in the context yes. of that finished yeah. product yes yeah. so to everybody out there i've consumed all of kate's content <laughs> so, sorry <laughs> sorry frank <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and so one of the things i love i absolutely love is this concept where I'm, if it's better than the baseline we implement yeah and i had a question for you the question is can you give me an example inside the, uh, the F1 world, and we'll do it later for yourself, but inside the F1 world, is, did you see any fundamental shifts from the baseline that you could share with us? Yes, uh, regularly. Yeah, so when I was working at Williams, I was on the front end team, yep. which meant that we did front wing, end plates, front brake cooling, yep. um, nose cone, pretty much all everything up to where the driver sits. Yeah, cool. And then there was the mid-body team and the rear. Yeah. And my area for the year that I spent at Williams was to look at elements that were on one of the planes on the front wing and on the end plates. Yes. And essentially a day at work would look like on a Monday morning I would show up and my senior aerodynamicist would say, this particular new idea for this element that attaches to the inside of the end plate, yeah. I want you to come up with 15 different variations of that. And it wasn't me coming up with my own theories yeah. and ideas, it was like, Here's the shape, yep. and now you're going to come up with 15 variations that sit at like one degree wow. or like one millimeter change. Yeah. So you'd model them. Yeah. You'd literally sit on a computer for 16 hours and you'd 3D model them. Yeah. And then there'd be the 3D drawings would be sent up to the wind tunnel model makers yes. that had the full level above our office. Yeah. They would create a 60% scale version yeah. of that. Then the I think it was one of every four weeks. Yeah. So front wing team would have a week in the wind tunnel then mid and uh, then rear okay, yes. and then next year's car so they had a dedicated team yes. starting to look at the new car based yep. on regulations that were coming through from the FIA yes. so they'd have the fourth week okay. so front wing team would go into the wind tunnel for a week yep. and we test out all these components that sat at variations the, mo the first and the most important test is running the existing car with all its existing components yes. to develop your baseline results yep. and then you know, we'd test all 15 variations of the little element that I'd modelled up yes. a couple of weeks ago. And many times one of those proved to be better than yes. that baseline test yep. that we did. And it was sometimes just very small increments, yep. but small increments in, in improvement added up make yes. the difference. Like and that. it makes it worthwhile. Like if you can make something half a percent better, yep. why would you keep it at baseline? Yes. And I think... That mindset for me was solidified in Formula One, but it's probably how I've approached life and it's definitely informed how we do everything at Loon since. That. Does that so kind good. of answer yeah, the no, question? Yeah, that's perfect, that's perfect. I'm gonna go take us on one more selfish divergence because I'm really curious. So, and this is this is where I go rogue, right? And it's like, in, in, in it's like if I look at the, the parallels with, with business, it's like you can have individuals who can be better than the baseline as an individual in a role. Yep. But sometimes when you have those individuals and with a collection of people, the ultimate end outcome is actually not better. Yep. Was there ever a time where those cars, they, they pay that front patch is better, but when you put it into the context of everything else, it doesn't have the performance increase? Yep. Is that, is that a... So, 
again, to just put it in the yep. specific context yep. of Williams, we were incredibly lucky at Williams. We had a 60% scale wind yep. tunnel and we had a full scale rolling road wind tunnel. Yes. So the, the way in which you test aerodynamic components, the, the realism of the result varies based on the way you're testing yep. it. So sometimes when we tested something at 60% scale, yep it proved to be better than the 60% scale yes. baseline. So then the next check was, okay, now we're going to build it at full scale yes. and we're going to put it on the actual race car and test it on a rolling road. Yep. And sometimes when it got to that point, because of the new introduction of, you know, the wheel traveling, or the air traveling over the yeah. moving wheels and how that changed the aerodynamic performance yep. of the car, you'd suddenly see that this component that was good on a static model didn't work yes. on, on a moving model. Yeah. Awesome. And like, yeah, sometimes, I think typically when you're testing a component, you can't test that component in total isolation, yep. whereas maybe in your example, yes. like a person can perform in yep. isolation but then put in a team, yes. but there's no point putting that little aerodynamic component in the wind tunnel okay. by itself yes, okay. because it has to be yes, in reference to the vehicle around it. That but sense. maybe there is that small <laughs> example of like, 60% static yep. to full-scale yep. rolling road. Yep. And when you start to introduce elements, like maybe it's a team that works in yep. isolation, but then when you put them in the scale of the organisation yep. that's moving and, yep. and in a changing climate yep. economically or yep. whatever, suddenly that team that worked well in isolation doesn't anymore. Maybe that's a, a better analogy. Well, I appreciate you running with my analogy, Kate. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> that, that's but, good. Has there ever been one that one of your team has done that's fundamentally shift, or is it all incremental gains that are better than the baseline concept? And you whether mean, it be in the kitchen, because like whether it be in the kitchen better than baseline, whether it be in process, whether it be in, like what around like even in business is like, have you ever had those someone come to you with an idea that's been able to be better than baseline that has fundamentally shifted, or is it all incremental? I think I think it probably is incremental. Yep. There have been, I think there have been fundamental changes that have made made enormous gains yep. on things like efficiency. Yes. And therefore, maybe the answer is there's been fundamental change because an improvement doesn't necessarily just have to be an improvement on the quality of the end product. Yep. An improvement can be achieving exactly the same end product yes. with a large leap in efficiency. Yeah, I love that. Can or like a large example? leap in costs. Yeah, I do. Yeah, please. So, um, oh, you can see over here a trolley of almond croissants. Yes, they look delicious. Back in, <laughs> they are not baked yet. Yep. So, okay, so the, the, the idea of an almond croissant is an austerity measure. Yes. So back in the days, you know, when croissants were really just French, yep. um, Parisian bakers, if they had any leftover traditional croissants at the end of the day, instead of throwing them in the yep. bin, they'd cut them in half, drop them in a bucket of sugar syrup, yep. and the next morning fill them with almond frangipan, top them with nuts, put a tray on top of them and squash them yes. and bake them again. And like so, they used to do at my restaurant. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that was, it was a, a cost-saving measure and a way to turn a product that would have been pretty inedible the next day into something that was even more delicious. So back in the original days, after, so the first phase of Loon for me for the first two years, I was a small wholesale business running as a sole trader. I then asked my brother to join and we converted the business together into a small customer-facing retail outlet. And by far, our greatest selling, most popular pastries were the Twice Bakes range, yes. of which the Armand is the original. And Cam and I would get down to Loon in Elwood at about 
three o'clock in the morning and the first three hours of the morning from three o'clock till six o'clock was spent taking the leftover croissants from the day before, cutting them in half, sugar syrup, filling with frangipan, topping them. It was an incredibly labour-intensive job happening at the most ungodly hours. (laughs) You know, when the rest of the world is still sleeping and when your alarm goes off at 2.30, it's nauseating. But it was a necessity because we knew that these were one of our most popular products and so we had to get up that early to make them. And then when we eventually took over this space that we're currently sitting in and we started to hire other chefs to grow the team, one of those chefs one day said, I've had an idea. I'd really like to prep an almond croissant the day before so it's totally ready to bake and put it in the fridge and then tomorrow can we bake that on a tray with one that we've prepped fresh that morning and see if there's any difference. Which essentially, if it worked, would have saved us all from starting work at 2 or 3 in the morning and we could start work between 5.30 and 6 in the morning. So already like a seismic shift in making a job more livable. Yes. Like making the alarm not be nauseating. So we tried it and you could not tell the difference. So good. But it then had this wild added effect where it meant that we could prep many more than we knew we needed on a given day. And so what we'd normally do, say we had 300 almond croissants prepped in the morning and we'd bake them. The the products that we try to stay until the end of the day is the traditional croissant, because if we've got some leftover at the end of the day, we can turn them in. But having almonds prepped, we didn't have to bake them all up, but we could keep them on the menu for the entire day. So you would get down to the last tray and then we'd go and bake another one. So it meant that at the end of the day, we didn't just have the traditional croissant on the counter. We had the traditional and the almond through to the end of the day, which is a dollar making measure. So so it improved efficiency, it improved our working hours and it improved our bottom line. I love that. It's pretty good. I think that that's a fundamental <laughs> that improvement. That is a fundamental shift. That is yeah. so good. It makes so much sense because when I went to Loon recently, it was 1 p.m. and those are the two croissants available to yep. me. I now know why. That's good. And now that you know that yep. little fact, yeah. the pan au chocolat yep. is another pastry that we can turn into a twice-baked, which you and I just sampled. Yes. So now we can technically have four pastries through till the end of the day. We can have the traditional, yep. the almond. Yep the pan au chocolat and its version of a twice bake. So we've noticed the the trend with customers is if they come in later in the day, yep. whatever is on the counter, they will typically buy yes. one of. Yep. So if you've only got a traditional croissant, they will buy one. If you've got four pastries, they will buy four. Oh, that's so, so good. <laughs> and it works, it's better for the customer experience yeah, too, that later in the day, there's more variety. Absolutely. So that's it's so good for everyone. Yes. Yeah. So we, we, skipped, we skipped one step. One of the things I would love to ask you, Kate, is, um, that tipping off point. You, you casually said, you know, and then I started learning. But I want to go to like, the, the, the reality is that, that that shift between having a salary, being comfortable to a degree, and then making a decision to take the leap forward is something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, like even starting this journey with the book, I've already had people reach out to me like, Frank, help me start a side hustle. You know, so I want to inspire people to go like, to understand that there is a big tipping off point. There's a lot of nerves, but like bring us into that moment where you had to make that decision, I'm going out on my own. So an important thing to know about me, which will go away to explaining and answering this question, I've never been money driven. So entering into the world of Formula One, I like I knew if you are if you are 
a unicorn like Adrian Newey, yeah. you're going to earn $20 million yeah. a year. Yeah. There aren't many unicorns. Yes. And I mean, it's great to aim for that, but you need to understand as well that Adrian Newey would have started out in F1 earning a very small amount while he earned his stripes and yeah. his respect and he proved his knowledge. So I started at Williams on a salary of 13,000 pounds a year. So for me, it was never about the money. It was truly for the passion and enjoyment of a fulfilling career. Um, I never really did earn a lot of money like up until starting Loon, I, the period of time that um, I, all the podcasts would have told you that I spent a period of time staging in Paris. Yes. I, staging is working for free. And in exchange, instead of getting a salary, you get to learn and yeah. you get to be surrounded by experts that are recognised in their field for being the best, yes. which is an honour and a privilege. It's, 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 like, it's, all, it's not quite free, but it's almost free education. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's a, yeah, awesome. And it's almost better than free education yes. because it's free education with on-the-job learning. Yes. Yeah. So you're learning and you're getting to work and see it in practice. Like. If I'd been able to do a stage in Formula One, yeah, yeah. maybe I would have understood better what that office environment was like. But for me, doing a stage was perfect yeah. because I got to put myself in the heart of one of Paris's best boulangeries and learn it. But I mean, living for free in Paris isn't easy. Yeah. I mean, your savings drop pretty quickly and I couldn't sustain that. Yes. So I came back to Melbourne and at the time that I was working in a capacity as a pastry chef in some of Melbourne's cafes. Yeah. If I was lucky, I was being paid $20 an hour. Okay. So like I think a pattern's starting to develop yes. that I've never been driven by what's going into my bank account. Yep. It's For me, it's far more important. I feel like the working years of our life mm -hmm. are the best years of our life where we're an adult, we have independence, we can make up our own minds and decisions about what we want with our life and how we spend our money. But more importantly to me, those, like if you look at a typical working week, you know, 40 hours, Monday to yeah. Friday, nine to five, they're the best hours of your week yeah, when, you know, so it's daylight and you're awake and you can do whatever you want. Do you really want to spend that doing something that you hate just to get to the two days at the end of the week where maybe you can go drinking to like drown your sorrows because you hate your job so much? Like enjoy those 40 plus hours yeah. a week loving what you're doing and for me salary was always just secondary to that yeah. but I mean you can't establish a business without spending money of course and I had I guess because I was working so hard mm. I wasn't really spending any money so anything that I did earn got tucked away nice. and in the starting of Loon it did require me to move away from even though it was not a lot like that consistent $20 an hour 40 hours yeah. a week and I mean, it's not a lot of money, but it's at least someone else worrying yes. about paying that to you rather than yep. you worrying where the money's going to come from. So I spent my life savings, but I can say in all honesty, not once did it occur to me that it was a risk. I was just, I was just, I just believed in it. And it felt like the absolute right thing to be doing and that if I didn't do it, I would look back as an 80 year old and regret not giving that a go. So for me, it was a total no brainer. It's funny, so many people have told me uh, in the ensuing years that they thought I was absolutely crazy. Not like, at the time. <laughs> even one of my business partners yeah. who'd been my boss at the cafe that I quit to go and start Loon, yes. he said, Kate, 
I thought you were insane. Like she's I leaving to open a croissant only bakery. <laughs> yes. It's going to fail. So no one will go to that. And then like four, four, five years yeah. later, he was approaching me because he wanted to invest and be a business partner. Wow, so, so it just didn't dawn on me that it wouldn't work. Yes. Um, there's a guy called Christian McCabe who owns one of Melbourne's best restaurants called yeah. Embla. And I remember when Embla first opened, I went into it and I said to him, Christian, I absolutely love this space. Nothing like this exists in Melbourne for it. It just, it feels so good to be here. And he said, honestly, I built it because it was the space that I wished existed as someone that goes to a wine bar. And he said it didn't exist. And he's like, well, if, if it's something that I want, that surely it's something yeah, out there that other people right. want. And he said, so I created my perfect space and I've discovered that it's a whole lot of other people's oh, perfect space that. too. When I got back from Paris, I went on this obsessive search around Melbourne for the best croissant yes. and obviously didn't find it because I probably would have just gotten a job with them otherwise. But... We started off in this tiny space in Elwood and then moved to this beautiful warehouse in Fitzroy. And then in 20, we moved here in 2015. In 2018, we opened our first satellite store in the Melbourne CBD. And that store in Melbourne yeah. CBD is hands down my favourite loom that exists because it's what I wished existed when I'd gotten back from Paris. And it's interesting because this store has to exist for yeah. that one too. Is it because we're, we're pumping out there? We're, we're, yeah, we're we do not all. Pumping out's probably not the right word, Kate. Oh, we are pumping it <laughs> okay, out. We're pumping like out these out. guys are pastry athletes. Yeah, yeah, they really are. <laughs> so we make the raw pastries yeah. here to supply that store. Yes. So that store, like, is so dependent on this store existing. But going into that city store is, it's like, it has the essence of a European espresso bar with this like unique modern, maybe Melbourne twist that I'd never witnessed. But when you're in there, the vibe is so good. The space is so beautiful. Like you can smell croissants from a block away. And it's just, there is something incredibly special and unique about that. And to this day, it's still a store that has the longest line on a daily basis. And that to me is an indication that that, that I wished existed, yep. other people also wished it existed too because yes. now there's such a loyal support for it. If you were to start Loon Croissants today, what would you do differently? Or start, with the or knowledge start, that I have? With the knowledge that you have. You were to, so, you know, the, the business you have to start, you have to start it tomorrow and you've got to, you take all the knowledge you have. Is, it, what, is there anything you'd do differently? No. None? No. Love. <laughs> Literally, I would... Oh, that actually makes me feel a bit emotional. <laughs> I would do it second for second exactly what's happened. Like, because it's ended up, like the store that we sit in now, the team that we're surrounded yeah. by, the other stores that exist not only in Melbourne but in Brisbane, it's all been one beautiful big learning experience. Yes. And every time we open a new store, we learn a little bit more about how we can innovate, iterate and improve. Yeah. But then it's funny, so this is now considered the flagship store. Yeah. And since we opened Fitzroy, we've opened the Melbourne CBD store, the Brisbane flagship store, yeah. a third satellite store in Melbourne and a second satellite store in Brisbane. And we opened these other stores and then we started learning about how we could improve the production space. Um, new equipment was coming out that was going into the newer stores that we'd opened. And then we took a look back at Fitzroy and although the 
the foundation and the heart of the design is still exactly the same. We started to see how we could improve the customer experience and the experience from a staffing perspective, especially production staff. And so in February, we completed renovations on where we're sitting now and made small, subtle improvements that are actually seismic in the proportion of how they've affected how the customers experience this space and how the staff experience it. So we're feeding our learning back into the existing stores. And I think like that's that's the mindset of a Formula One engineer. And I love the fact that we never just we never just sit still or accept that what we've done is the best it could be because you can always learn and improve and that can be applied to something that you're going to do or something you've done before that you can go back and improve on. Hundred percent. You've got to start a business today and the business is outside of croissants. Okay. What are the biggest learning lessons that you would take from Loon and bring into that business? Having an organic passion for something is something you can't fake or manufacture and people are very perceptive and intuitive and will be able to read through someone who is doing something solely for the purpose of getting rich or are they doing it because they are like they love what they do and they want to grow it and share it with the world and like that you cannot manufacture that Um, if I was to start any business in the future it would be I would like, and this is the same for Loon, but yeah. I, I would consciously make sure that I was embarking on it for the right reasons. Awesome. Um, I think one of the lessons that I learned through Loon that we had to learn this lesson pretty quickly. When we were down in Elwood, um, for, the, for the period of years when Cameron joined and we were a customer-facing business, we would open the shop at 8 a.m. Yeah. People would start lining up at 2 a.m. Yeah. And we would be sold out by 8.45. I just love that. So so it's it's pretty wild. And I think back on those times very romantically. Yeah, of course. And initially that was amazing for us because there was this crazy little business in a nondescript street in a quiet, sleepy Melbourne suburb with these crazy lines every morning. And the word of mouth and the media interest that that generated definitely catapulted us. But there was a point in time a tipping point where we realised that if we didn't figure out how to move and upscale our production, we would be annoying more people than we were making happy and we would start to lose customers and we would start to get a negative reputation. So a little bit of hype at the beginning is great to catapult the business into the public eye, but you need to have a real plan for how you're going to deal with that demand. I've had a conversation with two separate businesses in the last few weeks. One of them is uh, a startup non-alcoholic beer, and they are specifically planning into their launch process soft launches to just introduce it to small areas and track the ordering so someone who lives outside that area can't order while they figure out how to upscale their production. And the other one is a rotisserie chicken shop in northern New South Wales that um, has been started up by a couple that own one of the best restaurants in Australia. And because of their reputation through the restaurant, the demand for this chicken is huge and they're selling out crazy early and there's gaps in when the chickens can be ready. And they, like, they're having the exact same problem. Yes. I I think they just didn't realise how word of mouth would spread so quickly. And when you're doing something great, people want to be a part of it. So 
to start a new business knowing that you've got an amazing product that you care about yeah. organically that other people are going to want to get on board with, have a plan to upscale and all like figure out the rollout such that you don't kill all the good word of mouth yes. by upsetting people who are trying to get it and can't. I love that. So if I th- if I break it down, it's like so far we're talking about um, it's sort of talking about the ability to upscale, talking about making sure you're completely passionate around what you're doing. It's not not just diving into something for an outcome which might be monetary, but people can res- kind of see through that if you will. What is something else that you are doing in this next in this next venture? I think um, a lesson that I learned the hard way is understand from the very beginning, if you are planning to upscale, you need to have a deep understanding of the critical nature of staffing. And like when we moved to Fitzroy, we just needed hands to help us. We, We were desperate. But it's only been through a process of hiring sometimes the wrong people yep. that aren't a good fit for the organisation that we understand. And, like, sometimes that's a setback. Yes. Like, you hire someone to help you, and in the beginning it looks like they can help you because they've got hands and they're yes. able. Yep. But if they have the wrong personality or they don't gel with the team they're working with, it can be a setback so bad that it makes other people working around them unhappy in their work to the point where they leave. Yep. So you're not just losing the staff member that was poorly hired you're losing good staff members that don't work well with this new person so I think from very early on outlining why your company exists what your vision is and what values is it built on and then building those values that you can define and identify into a recruitment process and making sure that you're hiring people that share those same yes. personal values as your company value. Yes. And like, we've got a really amazing recruitment process yep. at Loon where we get somebody in, like if they do well in interview, yep. we'll get them in for a three hour trial. And it's literally just to see how they work with the team yep. and how the team connects with them. We then give our team the opportunity to give personal feedback on how much they liked working with that person. If if the feedback is positive, that person gets invited back for a full day trial so they can understand like physically and mentally what it means to do a day of work at Loon and then you can see them more from a technical perspective like their skills. That's amazing. Is that only for uh, our our chefs, our Loon, our... um... Are Loon engineers? Or no. Is it... Well, we call, I actually like calling them pastry <laughs> I know, engineers. I love it. But um, it, it applies to front of house as well. Okay. Amazing. And then typically um, the recruitment process is a little bit different yeah. for the management team sure. because, like, you can't really see them. Like, you can't <laughs> capture them in a day in action yeah. because yeah. their job is is more esoteric and their impact will be over a greater period of time. Fair. But for the operational people, both front of house and yeah. back of house, um, it's worked out to be an excellent nice. system because yeah. also the team get to have input in someone that they want to welcome into their Which team. Is so, so important. Yeah. So important. If you had to, if you were able to ask two questions in your interview to find the right people, what would the two questions be? Ooh. I know we'll never do an interview with two questions. I want to just find what you know. What are the most, you know, what are the most important things you're trying to look for? This would be something I'd have to spend a little bit of time honing. But yes. the two questions would have to be about finding out about that person's values I think for me and this has been clear from day one you can teach people skill and technique but you cannot teach them attitude and attitude is one of the most important things in someone fitting into an organization and a team so I think I would probably like for example at Loon 
um, our four values are pride, positivity, growth, and respect. And I might ask them to give an example of a time where in a previous role, yeah. they felt like they have shown respect to another team yeah. member. Yeah. And I maybe ask them to tell me about something that in a previous job that they're really proud of. Yes. Yeah. And like, were they proud of earning a lot of money? Yeah. Or were they proud of working in a team with someone that has a physical disability and understanding how welcoming someone onto that team can benefit everyone in a positive way, including that person. I, I think, oh, yeah, so yeah, I, I build yeah, yeah. questions around the values. Because yeah. I think, I love that because, especially when I think about pro, uh, like, like pride, is like that moment to reflect on a story. You can see the pop, you can see the genuine nature through yeah. that story. You know, if someone's like, like, tell me something, you're proud, like, Kate, I was really proud of that. <laughs> you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, no, you you're just like, reeled off yeah. an answer. <laughs> yeah. I think, like, for me, pride is one of, Pride is one of the most important because I feel like I've done a good day of work when I go home and I can look back and feel real pride in my commitment to my job on the day, things that I achieve both individually and as a team. Yes. Um, pride is something that makes me sleep really well at yeah. night and their positivity is tied yeah. into that as well. But yes. um, yeah, I think questions to ask someone on example like as you said it's yeah. not just the answer it's also yeah. how they deliver it and exactly. is it genuine is it yeah. heartfelt or is it something that they've practiced because yeah. they know it sounds like a good answer exactly right so let me hit you with this what are you most proud about with Williams? had you asked me this question five years ago i would have said um i'm proud of the croissants yeah. but i think i've grown a lot yeah. as a person in the last five years and now I am so proud that Loon is an organisation that employs, to current day, 180 people. And we really try to be a preferred employer. We focus on the health and wellbeing, both physically and mentally, of our staff. We do things like we get physios in who are experts in um, health and safety. So they show pastry chefs how to do things in a manner to like protect their yeah, bodies yeah. from injury yeah. or also to recover from injury. But then we also have an EAP, which yeah. um, employees in any facet of the organization yeah. can access confidentially through their manager or an HR manager. Um, mental well-being is as important easily as physical because if someone isn't happy within themselves, whether it be an issue at work or an issue outside of work, they're not going to bring their best self to the job. But also, it's funny, it's almost tra- like that that's a motivator at the start. Like yeah. I want someone to have good mental health so yeah. they can be good at their job. Yeah. But actually now it feels like a big family to me yeah. where I genuinely, like everyone cares about everyone yeah. here. And it's more just about, I just want the staff to be happy. Yes, yes. So because if you can provide them with yeah. a happy workspace, yeah. then they have somewhere safe and supportive yeah. and caring and like opportunity for growth and people respecting them yeah, and yes. they can be proud of their job. All the values yeah. tie back yes. into that. And so, the, the byproduct will be they're going to do amazing work and they're going to stay here a long time. You know, it's like, but that's not the, the problem. Well, I think my, my fast answer to that would be, you know, when I first started Loon, my responsibility every day was making sure the croissants are as good as they could yeah. possibly be. Yes. My responsibility today yeah. is making sure that the staff have all the resource, tool and support yeah. to make sure that they can make sure the croissants are the best they can be every day. So it's, um, <laughs> I think I'm probably most proud of like the growth 
and the learning that Loon as an organisation has done to be a preferred employer. That's awesome. That's so good. Love it. One of the things I love that you talk about is, is the, 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 you know, the croissants every day bringing a little moment of joy to someone's life. You know, yeah. that 10-minute moment, I, I absolutely love that. And I'd love to drill down. It's like, do you have a, a story or something that you've made the biggest impact through that one of those moments of one of your customers over the last 11 years? Can I start that question with what the moment of joy meant to me and why that was important for me to create a business that did that? Please. Obviously, there was that story in Paris of going and experiencing the bakery for the first time. But prior to that, when I was very ill with the eating disorder, I was seeing multiple medical professionals a week. I saw my GP had blood tests and an ECG done, psychologist and psychiatrist and a dietitian all of them every week and I had to go to Fairfield for my psychiatrist appointment every Tuesday morning and it was always a harrowing session where I I was friends with my psychologist but my psychiatrist was like she was more straight laced like nope we're going to get you well whether you like it or not and so I never really liked those sessions but the dietitian had had me on a plan and I mean, I am obsessed with baked goods. So for me, the naughtiest food was a baked good, but it was also the one that like I craved the most. And she said, you must have morning tea and afternoon tea. And for me, morning tea was going to a cafe and getting something sweet and a coffee. And my now business partner, Nathan, had just opened a cafe called Apt in Fairfield. And I swear to God, the muffins that his wife, who was his business partner, made are still to this day one of the best things I've <laughs> ever eaten. And I would back up yeah. I would back up the psychiatrist yeah. appointment with a visit to Apt, which was around yeah. the corner. And I would go from having the worst hour of my week to literally this moment of joy oh, where I would sit there and uninterrupted, yeah. I'd have my cup of coffee yeah. and this perfect muffin. And it seemed to make all the shittiness of that last hour just disappear. And for something as humble as a muffin to be able to do that, I think in in the years gone by, that's not been lost on me that, I mean, a muffin, like a croissant takes three days to make. A muffin takes 15 minutes. Yeah, that's right. And it's often like not really thought of. You just yeah. throw in, oh, I've got a bit of pear, I've got some chocolate, I'll chuck that in. But... For something so simple and humble to be able to snap you out of an uncomfortable or painful reality and for the period of time you're enjoying it, just have you in this little moment of happiness was, that was really important to me. So that's where I maybe first discovered that a moment of joy could be as simple as a baked good. Um, An example at Loon. (laughs) I mean, like, I feel like we're surrounded by them at the moment. (laughs) Literally... I mean, Anita, who you met earlier, she told me I don't normally even like croissants. And she said, I took one bite of that croissant just then. And she's like, it was so light and so soft inside. And it tasted like butter, but it wasn't greasy. And I've never experienced that in a croissant. And then she teared up when she was talking about it. And I mean, she's a chef. So she appreciated by being able to witness what was going into it, she appreciated the effort as well. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, actually, I do have a story oh, for you. Yeah. Another one, <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, no, sorry. There's this very famous French chef called Pierre Kaufman. Yeah. And for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival a few years ago, he was in town with the likes of René Redzepi and Chad Robertson and Richard Hart, yeah. like a list of very specific food-famous yeah, people. Yeah. 
and they all came into Loon at the same time. And Cam and I are in our chef's whites in the cube watching this lineup of some of the greatest chefs in the world oh, walk in the door. So and from the minute Pierre walked in, you could see he hated Loon. Really? He was like, I'm going to try a French accent here. <laughs> Look at these upstart Australians <laughs> with their fancy hipster bakery, thinking they can do it better than my country. Oh, I'm going to hate this croissant. So it was a Thursday, and at that point in time, we were only making, um, we weren't making pan au chocolat on a Thursday yeah. for some random yeah, reason, yeah, yeah. just traditional croissants. Yeah. So he came in, and someone gave him a traditional croissant, and no customer is allowed in the queue. Yeah. But Pierre, who is probably allowed, just... <laughs> walked straight in yeah. and I was working on the laminator at the yeah. time and he walked up to me and I was petrified yeah. and he looked at me and then he grabbed my face and he gave me a kiss on both cheeks and he was like oh my god it was perfection I was just taken back to my childhood <laughs> it was warm and buttery and soft and amazing and was, and then he was like I have one problem where is the panache oh, and so I great. think to be able to convince someone who is clearly so ready to hate yes. what you do, to have that moment and witness him having it and then see that turnaround yeah. was very special for me. That's so, so awesome. I love that. <laughs> and I think to, for, to remind a French man mm. of his childhood through a pastry, that's winning at bakery <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. I love it. And good French accent, by the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well done. I hope I don't get cancelled for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're so cancelled, girl. <laughs> So I want to ask you uh, something, I would say something like I ask all of my all guests this, but this is the first time I've had a guest, so you'll start with you. Well, maybe then after me you'll ask all of your guests. Yeah, perfect. So. so what does high performance mean to you? Uh, for me, high performance means pure, driven by excellence. Yep. Like you, you don't settle for the 80% or yes. the 90%. Your target is the 100% yes. and you continue to work towards that. I think as an actual result... High performance, like sitting in the bakery, high performance is the product being the highest quality it can possibly be, yeah. the process being to deliver that high product as efficient as it can possibly be. Yeah. From a staff effort perspective and a cost perspective, high performance is delivering that product that's been made by the production crew yeah. in the most premium way possible. So the the performance doesn't end with the making of the product. The performance ends in the delivering of it. So how is it packaged? How do the staff present it to you? What is the experience walking in as a customer to our store? It's. I think a lot of people think that Loon is a bakery that sells croissants. Loon is not a bakery that sells croissants. Loon is a bakery that gives people literally a premium experience yeah. It's an affordable luxury. It's not just about the croissant. It's about everything from when you walk in the door. So every, like the seats that we're sitting on, we fastidiously, like we had the stools made to the height that we wanted. They had to match the bar. We then, you notice that they're fixed to the floor because they are the perfect distance from the bar. So when you sit, your knees don't bash against it. You can rest your elbows. You can sit up straight. And I'm five foot six. My brother's six foot yeah. two. It works for both of us. So, so every single detail in this store is thought about. And then high performance extends beyond that customer experience to the marketing and the engagement through social media. So how do you carry that personality and voice into the digital world? 
so people who can't experience a croissant in person feel like they're engaging with the brand and the business. I think the brand equity of Loon for me is an example of a high-performing business where we've really managed to elevate a brand beyond a baked product. Um, does that answer your question? That answers my questions so well. And, and I, I, want, I want to take it a layer further with the, with the brand. It's like one of the things that I've noticed is you have an incredible personal brand. So you're, 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 the amount of people in the last two weeks that I um, have been telling about this interview or this catch-up today, and the amount of people that I've had, oh, I know Kate, oh, she's got an amazing story. And I'm like, I would have had no idea that you knew this, this person. And so to me, like your ability to build your personal brand has been incredible. How important do you think that and your journey through F1 and everything was that, that then Loon was not only this place that sold amazing goods, but like your story oh. that people, people tied to and resonated with? Loon, first, first of all, take personal brand out. Of, well, you know what? You don't need to because my personal brand includes Formula One. Like, that's in my DNA. Yes. And I know that my drive for excellence yeah. and high performance comes from my love of Formula One, which is the epitome of high performance. Yes. Yes. So Loon is intrinsically tied to Formula One. Yeah. And it is one of the greatest things that from day one set it apart from every other bakery that's ever existed. Yeah. No other bakery had that story or that DNA yes. that informed and drove the development and innovation of every part of the business. Yes. So I think it's actually something that I really enjoy as well. I enjoy telling people about my experience not just with Loon but with Formula One and I enjoy this like seemingly unrelated connection and bringing it together and seeing people go oh yeah I actually can see a connection between Formula One and croissants now whereas prior to this it would have seemed absolutely crazy Um, it's again like in my current phase in life I think I'm a really good engineer. I really like numbers and I'm a perfectionist and I'm process driven, but I actually think my greatest superpower is relationship building. I really love meeting new people. I like finding something that connects us that we can use as a foundation to build on in whether it be a professional relationship, a staff relationship, a personal relationship, whatever it is. Meeting new people is one of the greatest things that Loon has brought me because in Formula One, sitting at that computer modeling parts three days a week, I wasn't talking to anyone. And had Loon remained tiny and I hadn't had the joy and option of growing it with my brother, I would have been stuck in a kitchen for 90 hours a week rolling croissants by myself. Actually, my favorite part of the day when I was a wholesale baker was the deliveries, yes. ironically, because I actually got to go out there and talk to people yes. about what I was doing and they got to see the person behind it. And croissants can be great, but someone presenting it to you who's memorable will make yes. you never forget that croissant. That is so, so true. So, it's like not only a product in a business, it's like the story behind the product and like that, that journey and people resonate and love, like, yeah. love that. And like, there's no, there's no part of my story that's like, I wanted to make croissants to make a lot of money. Yes, yes. It, do you know what? It's, that, that feels alien coming yeah, out of my mouth. Yeah. But I wouldn't be sitting here now if, the, if we hadn't, like intrinsically through Cam, yeah. if Cam and I hadn't figured out how to scale up the business yeah. because working 90 hours a week by myself would have been totally unsustainable. Yes. Yes. And through growing the business, it's meant that I've, 
had this opportunity to meet so many people. And one of the greatest joys about working at Loon and like maybe through my personal brand has been becoming a part of the Melbourne food and wine hospitality community. And I think, I honestly think Melbourne's hospitality community is easily the best in the world. Like, uh, it's very, it's very, very cool. I love it. Like, I mean, I love going to London and New York, but those cities are so much bigger than Melbourne. So like, there's just more people and, you know, London has access so close to Europe and influence. For, like, for Melbourne to be so far away from the rest of the world and to have such an incredible, diverse, multicultural hospitality industry that is literally at the top of its game yes. is a source of great pride for me that I am now part of that. Yeah. And some of the peers in my industry that have become very dear and close friends, yeah. that wouldn't have happened, I think, yes. without my ability to talk about my my backstory. Yes. It's, in the loon that we sit in today and in the cross the straws, what are the different things that you track from a business perspective, a quality perspective, in terms like that, that you do, is, or is there different metrics that you track across the business? Do you really think there isn't? Come on, you know me well enough by now. So my, we use a, a, an app called Slack yeah. as a business communication, and it's funny, this is, a, this is more of a uh, personnel thing, yes. but Slack happened because, and this was a lesson that I had to learn, I think it was 2018, I noticed at about nine o'clock on a Friday night, something wrong. And it was a mistake that the head chef had made. And I sent her a text message blasting her. And she wrote back to me, it is nine o'clock on a Friday night. You don't have the right to be contacting me about something like this that you have an issue with. I understand you're the business owner, it's important to you, but I'm not working right now. And I was like, lesson learned. Yeah. And wow. it's inadvertently like we started to talk about using messaging systems that our staff could put on do not disturb. So notifications didn't yeah. come through outside of working hours. We found Slack. Slack is the greatest thing of all time. Because love it. Love it. We created a couple of yep. metric recording channels. And one of them is called Batch Babes. And when I was still responsible for determining what the production was going to be every day, um, you certain things that we do at the end of every day, we count how many trays of plain traditional croissants we have left, yes. how many trays of um, made-up twice bakes we have, yep. and that's recorded in the Batch Babes channel. And that data then informs the production plan, you know, moving forward for the week, how many batches need to be made and how they're broken up. Um, the planning for our production is literally Formula One level in terms of the formulaic Excel spreadsheet that we use to determine. It's definitely not ad hoc. Yeah, okay. And it's based on having no waste. So no croissants ever get thrown out. We never have any leftover, and the ones that are leftover are ones that can be converted into a twice-baked croissant. Um, We have another Slack channel called Cross-Section, but it's spelled C-R-O-I-S-S, (laughs) Cross-Section. And in every... So one of our amazing pastry chefs developed a theoretical map to spot where the floor lines are in, like, when you see these batches rolled out on the bench. When we do this process called the turns, where you create the layers, there are lines of floors where the where you make joins yes. and that will mean an imperfect lamination so we now have a map that shows where those floor lines fall yeah and then we drop 
the map of the 38 croissants cut from the batch over that. Yes. And on every on any given day, we pick an individual croissant from the map. Yes. And every single store around Australia, yeah. we mark, like we do a cross-section tray, yeah. and that individual croissant is marked out on that tray, and every single store cuts that croissant in half and analyzes the cross-section to make sure that each store is essentially like doing exactly the same production as the other. That is I love. so, so cool. It's so good. It's, it's so like my, it's my version now of wind tunnel testing. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so every morning checking out the, cro the cross-section channel is, and you just see five cross-sections from around the country. And you know what? They're not always the same. And I don't mind that because it, it means we can identify which stores are doing slightly higher quality production than the others and then okay we can identify that you know there's an issue in Melbourne at the moment or there's an issue in Brisbane and we can hone it down to where that issue is coming from and it just means that having stores in multiple states yes. comes with complexity because I can't be yes. everywhere all at once the executive chef can't be everywhere all at once but having digital record of that of our product means that we can stay on top of the quality even without eating the croissant is I, I'd recently listened to a podcast with five guys and the five the owner of five guys burger store UK everywhere I really like their fries and, and yeah that's right and they're like we do burgers and fries and they're, and they're, and and the guy I love listening to Stephen Bartlett talks about like how do you get the quality and he's like we do every store gets quality tested four times a week yeah. every store across multiple hundred and I had this question I was like how do you test it and like that to me is like such a unique way that you were able to it's like if I think about a business scaling up it's like you wouldn't go and pay people right now to test every store four times a week because like it's, it's not plausible no. but that is like a really clever interesting way to test the um to test the quality. Is there anything else like that that you guys do? Well, it's not just the cross-section. Yes. So they also take a, a top-down photo yes. of a tray of proven unbaked yes. croissants that is the cross-section tray. Yes. And then a top-down photo in exactly the same position with the same lighting every day wow. of the baked tray. So we can get an idea of the size and shape of the proven croissants, yes. which do vary from yes, time to time. And they vary because we use natural products. Like yes. we use organic milk, yeah. we use organic free-range eggs. Yeah. The butter varies, like where it comes from in France. Yeah. It's very dependent on the season that the cows have been eating the pastures from. So in the winter, the butter's whiter. Yeah. In the summer, it's yellow. Wow. Um, so all those ingredients varying in their own seasons and times yes. means that the product will vary. Yeah. But, oh, I've actually diverted to talking no, about no, something no, else. No. It's... Sorry, this is like completely unrelated, no, but please. a lot of people ask if we'd ever automate the process. Yes. And what I just described is the one reason why we can't. Because up until a certain point when the croissants are proving yeah. and when they're being baked, yeah. it requires deep level of experience and knowledge from the pastry chef who's on the ovens baking yes. to look at a tray and go, well, it's been proving for X amount of hours, yes. which is what we proved for yesterday. Yeah but the yeast is a bit slower because this time yesterday they were bigger, so I need to leave them in for a bit longer. And then the oven cycle isn't the same every day either because yeah. that's adjusted based on the experience and the eye of the pastry uh, chef baking. So you could automate elements of yep. the process, but ultimately it's always, and I love this, it's always going to require a certain level of human interaction to finish that product yes. because it requires the experience of that pastry chef. That's so cool. I have a question for you. What haven't I asked you today? Maybe an interesting question is, what's your actual role at Loon now? Because, I mean, it's it's topical. So my role today at Loon is unrecognisable to what it was 11 years ago, 5 years ago, 3 years ago. 
Um, we now have established a full executive team that sit underneath myself, my brother, and Nathan. So myself, Cam, and Nathan, the three of us who own Loon. We've got a general manager and then a suite of managers that sit under him responsible for finance, business development, uh, human resources, marketing. We've got a couple of assistants. There's about 12 of us that work out of the head office. The last operational thing that was solely my responsibility was the Loon Instagram account and I handed that over just before I went on long service leave two months ago. I think my role now is high-level decision-making, having the vision for the future of the organisation alongside my two business partners, determining what strategy is required for that vision to to become a reality, and then figuring out how we pass that strategy down to our executive team, and then they figure out how to pass it down to the operational people that actually make it happen. So it's a a visionary and decision-making role. And I think it's never going to not be this. Yep. I will always be the face of Loon. Yes. So um, from a media perspective, I'm still the one that the media come to when they want to talk to me about this new wave of like creativity with croissant yep. pastry yep. or like why is the hot cross bun so popular in Australia? <laughs> like as a baker's perspective. Yeah. Like last week, yeah, some radio, I think ABC radio yeah. contacted me. Thankfully, I was out at the time and didn't see the message, but they wanted to talk to me about the fact that Charles and Camilla have chosen the coronation quiche as their signature dish, and they wanted my thoughts on it. How did my life become commenting about a coronation quiche? But it's now that K-Read is synonymous with Loon, and Loon obviously has um, a reputation of respect within the baking industry, it's now traversed outside of croissants to all things baked yeah, yeah, goods. So someone touches and put it in an oven, can't read. <laughs> but then I kind of love it that roll around March, April every year, people start reach out, reaching out to me with my opinion on Formula One. Yeah. And that my, the fact that my level of expertise in that field hasn't been brushed over or lost, yeah. but maybe just celebrated through Loon, oh, which is, awesome. yeah, that's a awesome. great source of pride for me as well. I love that. Yeah. Now, you sent me a list of questions, and one question just hit me, and I was like, I absolutely love this, and we're going to ask Kate. We're going to do a croissant on a Kate. What would it be? Oh! <laughs> oh, I feel like it's such a boring answer, but I'm going I'm to hit you with it, and if you don't like it, I'll think of something else. Yeah, no. I truly think that the traditional croissant yeah. is the embodiment of me. Yes. It is the way we make it yeah. is totally unclassic to the, yes. the traditional yes. French technique. It's something that I reverse engineered and innovated. Yeah. It's a constantly evolving and improving product that I realise is never going to be perfect. So there's always that beautiful goal yes. that we can aim to continue to improve it. Um, It's made with a level of knowledge and understanding that I don't think people had about croissants prior to Loon existing. Um, And I think it is a slightly arrogant thing to say, but I do believe it. Like, I think Loon put the croissant back on the world stage as a pastry for people to get excited over. And no longer was it just this token staple French bakery item on every counter but it was a pastry that could be 
looked at and critically analysed and improved and loved and innovated with. So it's boring, but I no, think no, that's No, no, it's me. not boring at all. I love that. That's so good. That's so awesome. I it's have, also my favourite pastry to eat. Yeah? Well, how many times a week were you, were, were you to play croissants? Like four times a week. Oh, perfect. And do you, is, it a, is it a mixture of, uh, of taste-testing ratio of Marie's up and or is it just real pure love? No, if I, like... We taste tested yeah. a croissant earlier. Yeah. Um, I don't count that. Yeah, okay. For me, eating a yeah. croissant is actually sitting down and enjoying it as my breakfast. Um, for me, it's still that moment of joy. Yeah. So when I decide of a morning that a croissant is going to be my breakfast, to yeah. sit there and have a really well-made coffee yeah. and a traditional croissant that's like 10 or 15 minutes out of the oven, it's still soft and warm inside yes. but shattery and crunchy on the outside, that's a moment where I sit there and like, I said about that muffin. Yeah. I kind of forget about my problems yeah. for 15 minutes and just have my little moment of joy. Tasting a traditional croissant is important to, like a traditional croissant yeah. at Loon yeah. is important to understanding the person that I am. Yes. And talking about it not just being the product, the experience as well is ensuring that, like one of the things that is different to Loon to every other bakery in the world is we bake fresh throughout the day yeah. so we always have an oven going with yeah. two fresh trays coming out which yeah. means that every time you come to loon you will have that experience awesome. and i mean it, it maybe it felt like today it was curated to make sure that you got it at its best but we actually curate that to make sure that every Everyone. customer has that experience it's five years from today what's changed so in five years we will confirmed have two stores open in sydney which is very exciting to yes. me. I feel like the and Sydney me. market have been begging for it for a long time. Actually, yeah. you and I bonded over to yeah. you talking about your favourite croissant in Sydney. Yes, so right. hopefully, when Loon opens, Smash hopefully. <laughs> no, no, I just want, I just want us to be your new favourite. Yes, so we'll have the store in Darlinghurst, which will be equivalent to Fitzroy, our main production store. And we've also signed a lease, and we're working with the architects on the design of our first satellite store, which will be in Martin Place. Very exciting. We also. I say this with 99% confidence that we will have a third store in Sydney by then as well, but we don't know the Sydney market yeah. well enough, enough yet to understand where that third store will be best placed. So we plan to operate in the market for yeah. a period of time to understand the demand and need, and then we'll pick our location. We know it will go well in the city yeah. because we have that example of Loon in Melbourne yes. and Loon in Brisbane. Yes. Yeah. Um, five years from now, what is that, uh, 2028? By 2025, we want to have three stores Melbourne, two or three Sydney, two or three Brisbane, depending on how much we think the Brisbane market can take. 2025 is our delineator where we go, okay, are we going to consolidate and yes. just enjoy and appreciate what we've got yep. and build it up for long-term sustainability? Yes. Are we going to go west and maybe consider like Adelaide or Perth yes. as a market or is that really the time? And I think it's the biggest question on most people's lips, will you ever go overseas? <laughs> And I think myself, Cam and Nathan all love the idea of, we don't know where Loon ceiling is yet. And I don't think it is Australia. Yeah, I, I think it would be very successful in international markets. Yeah. And I don't want to get to the end of my professional yeah. life and not have really tested the boundaries of Loon. But we're not, we're realistic. It's yeah. opening a Loon in Asia or Europe or America represents an enormous challenge. Like, totally different market. Yeah. Even just the way 
councils and planning and everything works. I mean, we already had somewhat of a following when we opened in Brisbane and we've got a big following in Sydney. But we might go to New York and you think you've got a following in New York because some people from New York follow you on Instagram, but like New York's a big city. Does your Instagram following represent enough to generate the revenue you need to justify a store over there? Since you and I have been sitting here, not while we've been been interviewed, but like people recognise me and they're happy to know that the owner is in and around the store. And when I go up to Brisbane, even me being there, the staff are so happy and excited to see me there. How important is the founder of Loon actually being present in the stores from a staff motivation perspective and a customer excitement level perspective? Or in five years' time, will Loon have transcended the Kate Reed brand and and maybe it won't matter. Where, do you think there's an intersection that meets you know, the, the heart and the, the commercial part? Is there, is there a place in the world that might meet that? You mentioned New York, that piqued my interest because I'm like, that's gotta be, it's gotta be interesting but it's also gonna be highly lucrative. I think it's interesting and it's highly lucrative and it certainly ticks the heart box yeah. for me, but it's a very long way away. And you know, when it could be, an eight-hour flight to Singapore and very similar time zones. So when we're working as teams together, you know, if half the executive team are over in Singapore doing something, we can actually have Zooms and things without having to be operating in the middle of the night. So actually from like from a business perspective, yes. and a vi- like I understand all of that, but there are certain cities that I just don't know. Like, do you know, I really struggle with humidity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what, maybe the croissants really struggle with humidity. Yeah, I mean, we would have to have temperature controlled rooms for when they're finished, right? You'd probably have to have a temperature controlled customer yeah, area course, to enjoy it. Course, the yeah. thing is, you can't control the product once it leaves the store. Of course, of course. And I mean, we're learning about like Brisbane has been a good market yeah. to test out yeah. a very different climate. Yeah. Um, we had to do a lot of recipe testing when we went up there. We had to tweak the dough recipe really? because, you know, there's a lot more humidity which yeah. changes the hydration level of the dough. Yes. So. Yeah, that's awesome.